Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, David French, and Jonah Goldberg. We are going to discuss this administration's potentially unprecedented bad six weeks. We will first start with immigration, then trouble on the foreign policy front, first with our allies, then still Afghanistan. And finally, is Joe Biden just bad at his job? has really moved to the fore, although it's been a problem throughout the Biden administration. Steve, I want to first start with the diagnosis of what caused this problem. Well, this is a problem that's been long in the making, and and we've talked about it before. Nobody should be surprised about this. The senior Biden administration officials, including the president uh, himself, both as a candidate and then later as president-elect, were asked specific questions about this and suggested that they understood that there was likely to be this this surge of of migrants. Uh, They seemed wholly unprepared to deal with it and have since January 20th when the president was sworn in. Uh, They they, uh, seem to have been taken surprised by the early surges in the spring, which again were predicted. They named Kamala Harris, vice president, uh, as the overseer of immigration policy. She was going to work with uh, countries in Central America to to get to the root causes, to stem the flow of migrants. Um, There have been some uh, external factors, um, the the political unrest in Haiti, the, the natural disasters in Haiti, which have led in part to this latest uh, gathering in Del Rio, Texas, uh, primarily Haitians looking to to come to the United States, although many of those Haitians are coming from other Central and South American countries, not directly from Haiti. But I guess that's what is is potentially the most surprising about this, is that they're either totally unprepared for something that they themselves predicted was going to happen, or they have made a deliberate policy decision not to address it. And I think there is a case for both of those. I suspect the answer is probably a combination of two of them. But what it's led to is this moment that it really is a a crisis. It's a growing crisis. We're talking about unprecedented numbers of, of people. And even if you're sympathetic to the United States is a home for asylum seekers, for uh, you know, in- increased immigration, uh, for humanitarian reasons, um, you know, expanding who we allow in legally. What you're seeing on the border today is wholly unacceptable because that's not what we're witnessing. So, David, we're seeing a 21-year high surge at the border, uh, and that was back in August. But if you go back to March, the president basically told everyone that we were just wrong. You know, don't believe your lying eyes. He said it happens every single solitary year. There is a significant increase in the number of people coming to the border in the winter months of January, February, March. It happens every year. But what we've seen now is this was not just the seasonal, you know, tides of immigration It has been a long time since March, since they should have seen that this wasn't just the seasonal tides. What could they, should they have done between March and now? What wasn't done? Well, you know, (laughs) boy, Sarah, that's where you get to the really interesting question, because 
one of the things you can't say is you can't say that they rolled back all the Trump era policies. Um, they're they're still turning away um, most of the migrants under you know under Title Forty Two. Um, in fact, they have been blocked in some of their efforts to derail Trump era policies by judges. The one thing that they have done is they've allowed unaccompanied minors um, into the border at a greater scale. So you're you are having you know more individuals in those in that situation. You know more kids coming through. Um, the other thing that's happening is it looks like you're having a lot of repeat crossers, uh, people who tried before and are being turned away again. So um, I'm looking at some Politico st- reciting some statistics that in June there were 188,000. Let that sink in. That's a lot of people. 188,000 migrants apprehended at the border. 34% had tried to cross at least once before in the last 12 months. So part of this is the question is, uh, what, what is it that was, how could, should they have expected the surge of this magnitude? And should they have taken steps to, for example, um, make sure that people are, are helped house, be- house better in Mexico? Um, that are there, were there ways to, was, was the sending the message that unaccompanied children are going to be let in? Was that something that was materially counterproductive? All of those things are very good questions. But there's one thing that I think that is that is just a failure is the failure to anticipate the scale. Now, you can defend it by saying it's a scale we haven't seen for 20 plus years. How could you possibly anticipate it? However, there's some complicating factors here that should have made it maybe a little bit more easy to anticipate. And one is you did have the upheaval of the pandemic. You have economic upheaval of the pandemic. You have um, continuing problems in these countries where migrants are coming from. Um, and then you had quite simply a change administration with one indicating that it had a lot more welcoming, welcoming attitude towards migrants. And then that's going to incentivize people to give it a try. Um, but I, I, on the one hand, I say you should have been prepared. On the other hand, I'm not exactly sure that there is a way to comfortably deal with this scale of numbers approaching the border in a way that is neat and clean and easy to handle. This goes back to something that, you know, I remember Jonah bringing up back when we first talked about this. The first, one of the first ways to know that somebody doesn't really know uh, how to deal with the border is if they come forward and they say, I've got the plan to deal with the border. <laughs> um, so this is this is hard. This is complicated. Um, should they have anticipated it? Yeah. Um, is it as simple as simply saying they've rolled back all of the Trump era policies? No, because they haven't. Um, so I, I'm at a position where I have both sympathy for the plight and concern that they weren't prepared. So, Jonah, this is exactly the conversation that I wanted to have because I feel like it's very easy for people on both sides to just sort of scream about their sort of 30,000-foot border policy. But David hit on two things that I think are the crux of the problem here that are really hard to solve. One, uh, some of the biggest surge we've seen is in unaccompanied minors. First of all, they're unaccompanied, meaning they're not with their parents, They're not unaccompanied, meaning they're by themselves. They're being brought up by someone paid to take them, usually a smuggler who is associated with one of the cartels. Those people are making a ton of money, more money potentially than they've been making on drugs. And so this has become economically um, 
actually economically somewhat similar to drugs. And we didn't do a great job with the drug wars, I'll just point out. Uh, and now it's humans, and those humans are children. And, you know, they're dropping them over the wall. Um, I think we can be pretty sure that a lot are ending up in some unsavory positions when they do reach the United States uh, to pay off that debt. Second, some of this is atmospherics. You can talk to, they do interview any number of people trying to cross the border and they say, yeah, we thought Biden was um, friendlier to immigrants and we thought now's a good time to come. What can the Biden administration possibly do to change sort of a narrative um, that politically they can't change because of the politics? How, How can you possibly deal with this? If you're the Biden administration. Well, we, we, we know that one proposed solution to the problem that, as you lay it out, was to send Kamala Harris to South America and say, don't do this right now. And um, it turns out that a lot of poor, desperate people yearning to come to the United States of America for a better life did not find that a particularly persuasive argument. Um, uh, No, because the issue wasn't whether they wanted, like whether they thought the Biden administration wanted them to come. The issue was that they thought the Biden administration would be more lenient in terms of their ability to turn them away. And to David's point, maybe they're actually not, um, because if you just overwhelm the border, you've overwhelmed the border. And there's not much that a Republican administration would be doing differently right now. Right. My only point was, is that they thought that somehow Kamala Harris could could address the root causes and get turn off sort of the spigot of the flow of immigrants. And she failed at that. And she pretty clearly realized that either by design or by accident, Biden put her in a no win situation as the border surge czar. Um, and she has kept a low profile on that subject ever since. Um, I th- look, I, I think you're right that, that at some point you hit a certain critical mass where the problem that you should have anticipated becomes a, different problem at scale than one you can now deal with the same way as before. There's, you know, part part of my objection, and maybe it's because I'm writing about this today, is there's a passive voice thing that keeps coming into both the Biden administration's explanations of its or excuses of its own problems and the way the media covers it, where, and you heard it, I mean, I know this wasn't David's point. I mean, he explicitly wasn't making this point, but it it just sneaks into the language where he says, this is a 20, you know, could he, could they, you know, he says the Biden administration um, says that this is a, a 20 year high surge at the border. How could the, how could we have anticipated this? Well, it's, it's a little like, and this is a little unfair, but it's a little like blowing up a dam and then saying, look, this is, this is a 20 year high in flooding in the area. Um, they created a lot of the preconditions. Some of it just, by campaigning the way Biden did and promising to be the non-Trump. And by the time, like a game of telephone, by the time that message gets down to Central America, it is not this, oh, by the way, we're going to hold on to these technical rules and we're not going to disband the CPB. It's like, come on in. And um, and they shouldn't have gotten that message. And it really wasn't our message. It wasn't even the Biden campaign's message. But that's the way it got translated. And part of the problem they have, the Biden has is I think he's very much got a lot of memories from the Obama administration in his head. And he thinks that these are sort of replay. He's replays where now he's in charge. 
And the thing is, the border is a different issue now than it was when Obama was president. And even then, Obama got some really bad press for it. But at least the mainstream media was on his side on a lot of this stuff. We now have essentially bureaus of a lot of news outlets at the border full time because of the Trump administration. They haven't disbanded them. The cameras are up. They've lots of people have bought into arguments that I think at times were unfair to the Trump administration. Um, and now for fear of seeming inconsistent or hypocritical, they have to apply somewhat of the same standards to the Biden administration. And that is just really bad for the Biden administration because the Biden administration is locked into a very different political coalition that wants to instantaneously believe that reins on horses are whips when, when uh, on the border patrol and that believes, if not explicitly in open borders, to something very close to it, at least on an ideological level. So they don't know how to talk about it. They just want the press to stop covering it. They, in some ways, I think they want to do the right thing, but they don't know how to do the right thing with this level of scrutiny and this level of a problem. And so it sucks for them. So real quick, uh, Steve, just the politics of this, you know, how does the Biden administration, how much does this affect the midterms? Is this a boon to Republicans? Is this what elected Trump in 2016? Uh, but maybe on steroids, because the pictures that we are seeing out of Del Rio, um, whether you are an immigration hawk, they're stunning, or whether you just care about human beings who are living in, uh, to call it third world, um, I think actually understates what they are living in down there. Yeah, nobody can be happy about this. Like, it, it, I think it's a, it's a potentially pretty significant political development for Biden for a couple of different reasons. One, as Jonah suggests, there is this you know, he's getting lots of pressure on this from his left. The the young man who tweeted out the video, there was a video that was tweeted out or a picture that was tweeted out and he made accusations that uh, CPB was using whips on um, the migrants. They weren't whips. They were reins. Um, the young man who sent out that message claiming that they were whips and later sent out a video worked for Julian Castro. Um, this a lot of this pressure is coming from Biden's left, and uh, they're making clear that they think that that this is uh, totally unacceptable uh, the way that this has been botched. The the second reason I think this is problematic for him is it feeds this growing, I think, undeniable not only narrative but reality that Biden is not competent in the way that he promised he'd be competent. This doesn't happen if you have sort of a modicum of competence. I think it follows um, episodes like Afghanistan, where, again, wherever you, you fell on the question of whether we should withdraw or not, you look at what happened and you think that was a disaster. Well, this is another disaster, and it's on Joe Biden. And the third reason I think it's, it's politically problematic for Biden is exactly what you're suggesting, Sarah. You know, certainly this will fire up the immigration hawks. I mean, this is something that's been getting widespread coverage on Fox News for a long time. I mean, Fox always covers the border. I think in, in some weird way, other news outlets have chosen not to cover it as much because Fox covers it so much. And there's this sense that if Fox is covering it, it can't be a real story. Well, they missed a big story because this is a real story and it's been growing in importance for a long time. But it will fire up the immigration hawks. But, but more to your point, Sarah, everybody else will look at this and just say, how does something like this happen? 
And I think, it, you know, you, you now have uh, other mainstream news organizations that have been forced to, to cover this. And I think we'll look back at some of the rhetoric that we got from Kamala Harris, from Joe Biden, from people who speak on their behalf as, as late as this spring, saying she was going to get to the root causes, this would be addressed, this, this was a seasonal surge, the numbers would be coming down. All of it was wrong. All of it. I mean, virtually everything they said was wrong. At a certain point, you don't have to be an immigration hawk or an immigration dub or a Republican or a Democrat or conservative or, or liberal. You just look at that and you say, these people don't know what they're talking about. And that's, I think, the, the big risk. Yeah. I mean, what's really interesting to me is I think there's a direct parallel between Biden saying that we'd have an orderly withdrawal from Afghanistan, that this was all going to be fine. And again, the video of him saying, uh, this happens every single solitary year, folks. This is a significant, uh, there is a significant increase in the number of people coming to the border in the winter months. It happens every year and then it goes back down. Um, it, it looks like the something that the White House may want to look into is having the president stop predicting the future because um, it is coming back to boomerang hard on him when that then becomes the specific crisis. And he was the guy who ran on confidence that he knew this, that he'd been around so long, there was nothing new under the sun. And then all of his predictions where he's patronizing to the person asking it, as in like, you have no clue how could you even think there's been a surge at the border? Uh, huh. Yeah. Um, also, you know, it's yeah, David, it, it, that, that Afghanistan comparison is so great because it also ha begins with the predicate of complicated situation. Yeah. Complicated situation, predictable negative outcome for which there was no effective plan. We, we will be revisiting that. Yes, exactly. We, this will be a theme, I think, of, of, of this particular podcast episode. Uh, we've had senior officials at the Department of Homeland Security resign in the last two weeks. The chief of staff, um, another senior official. And, I, you know, something that's baffling me is not a lot of coverage on that. There's been tons of coverage that they resigned, but not a lot on the why. Not a lot of um, palace intrigue stories. I want to know why all of a sudden we have two of the most senior people at the Department of Homeland Security quit in the middle of a crisis? Is it because they wanted to go harder? Is it because they wanted to go soft? Like what, what was the disagreement fundamentally? And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. David, this brings us to trouble in ally land. Yeah, this is really something interesting because uh, this kind of unfolded in a two-step process. So this is right after we had the debacle in Afghanistan, um, the last American, you know, you'd had that, that grainy image of the last American soldier, a general boarding the last plane and flying off. You had, 
you know, Biden essentially censured by the British Parliament, allies outraged, just a complete debacle in Afghanistan. And then all of a sudden you turn around and you have what looks to be something unambiguously good. You've got Biden uh, in the White House flanked by a big TV screen on his left-hand side. There's, you know, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom on the right-hand side. There's the Prime Minister of Australia. And they're announcing a defense deal to counter China that makes all the sense in the world. We are going to allow, and with British cooperation, Australia to build a fleet, well, a class of nuclear submarines far more powerful and capable than the diesel submarines that they had. Uh, We're going to give them um, technology and we're going to give them standoff missiles that are going to, I mean, be an absolute force multiplier for the Australian military. I mean, materially ramping up the Australian military at a time of increased tension. And this is something where even, you know, even a couple of years ago, Australia was navigating this middle ground between the U.S. and China, kind of, don't don't get us into your fight. And then all of a sudden, Australia throws all in uh, with us. And then complication, uh, it turns out that Australia had a, oh, I don't know, a submarine deal with France um, before to the tune of a cool about, what, 66 billion or so. I don't know if that's U.S. or Australian dollars. It's in the tens of billions of dollars. And And France is ticked off. So ticked off, it recalls its ambassador to the U.S. So here you have this great sort of diplomatic triumph that pulls Australia form, firmly back in our orbit, enhances the military alliance against China, enhances deterrence over the long term against China, although it won't, you know they won't have nuclear, Australia won't have nuclear submarines for a while. And then one of our closest allies pulls its ambassador. What the heck, Steve? Well, it, it, you know, it's it's a deal that the United States uh, totally defensible for the United States to have have made this step. I think not only defensible, but but uh, a, a huge positive, huge net positive. It was the case that the the deal with France, sixty plus billion dollars, was struck some years ago after lengthy negotiations, and was likely to produce subs that were inadequate, that were easily detected, that didn't have the range that nuclear-powered subs have. Uh, and this potentially greatly enhances Australia's uh, abilities and reach in the region. The problem here is on the diplomatic side. And again, this is from Joe Biden, who was former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, somebody who prides himself on putting diplomacy first, somebody who campaigned on restoring America's alliances. And what appears to have happened, if you you read uh, the reporting on this, is that the United States and Australia primarily, with the UK sort of taking a a backseat role, just totally ignored France and in some ways misled France about what was going on here. You know that France isn't going to be happy with the outcome. But good diplomacy might help you mitigate the consequences of that by talking them through it, working with them, coming up with other ways in which France can recoup this, this lost contract or could participate in, in a cooperative venture. Instead, what we have is, as you said, David, Macron is furious at the United States, recalling uh, the ambassador to Washington. and 
threatening to sort of take Europe with him, threatening to make this a bigger European problem rather than just a France problem. And there's no doubt some French pride involved here. But this is actually, I think, a, a, a real diplomatic misstep to not work the phones and try to get France to understand what's happening, even if, they're, even if you know they're not going to be happy with the outcome, which they're not. Try to get them to understand it, um, maybe go along, maybe be quiet, or at least quell their, their anger. But instead, uh, reporting by David Sanger at the New York Times and others suggests that we not only didn't take those diplomatic steps, but actively excluded France, misled them at times, and then sprung this on them out of the blue, leading to that kind of reaction. I, again, you can agree with what the United States did, you can disagree with it, but that is sort of diplomatic malpractice not to have prepared the ground for an announcement of this scale. So Jonah, I, I guess I'm particularly stumped by this because France has actual strategic interests in the Pacific. It has territories in the Pacific. I mean, they're going to be a player out there. Um, and look, I, I completely get it from the Australian perspective that American te nuclear technology for submarines vastly increases their defense capability, vastly increases, not to mention the missiles. Um, is there, a, is there a piece that we're missing that the French just were never going to be happy anyway? <laughs> what, what am, what am I missing here? Well, I mean, so you know, first of all, I, it, I mean, I don't have an excellent answer on this, but, you know, I, I think that the Australia, UK, US, you know, AUKUS is what they call it. Um, alliance makes sense because it's sort of a logical extension of the five eyes, which is essentially an Anglophone intelligence alliance, which is those three countries plus New Zealand and Canada. And I was reading a really interesting piece in the, the British Spectator. Um, on this. And, and part of the point was that this had less to do with, I mean, this is a very British reading of it, but had less to do with the, the submarine deal part of it and the jobs and all that, and had more to do with the fact that France believes still in a very rigid form of continental diplomacy and is, um, and, you know, and remember France pulled out like a crybaby out of the NATO, you know, nuclear, uh, uh, um, alliance and, you know, has always seen it, has never really made peace with the fact that it is at best a junior partner on, in terms of global geopolitics, you know, to the United States and maybe even to the UK, it sees itself as an independent actor. And so I think part of this speaks to something that, um, I'm, I've always been in favor of, which is a more robust sense of a sort of a, an Anglophonic or, uh, you know, alliance doesn't mean you throw Europe completely under the bus or anything like that, but Europe has not quite figured out what it wants to do about China. And when we talk about France, we're really talking about the EU in a lot of ways, because the whole EU is, was designed to be hitched to the twin horses on the chariot. It would be Germans, German economy and France's diplomacy. And, um, and leaving them out of it makes a lot of sense. But I'm entirely in agreement with Steve that the guys deserved a phone call. You know, I mean, like, what is the rule? I mean, like every every House majority leader in American history uses talks about the cliche of you can vote the way you want, but don't surprise me. Right. I mean, it's like this is a really basic concept in politics of 
if you're going to screw someone, let them know it's coming and try to soften the blow. And we didn't seem to do that at all in this circumstance. Um, you know, and it has to be a pretty big deal, a big, a pretty big unfair deal to France for me to start to sympathize with the French um, about anything. And the last point I'll make, which also came from the spectator piece, which I think is just something worth pondering, is if we brought France into this thing, not only would it create the possibility of lots of leaks and back channels and EU skullduggery and all that kind of stuff, it would change the name of this alliance by putting an F in front of AUKUS. And that's just really <laughs> problematic for all sorts of phonic reasons. <laughs> so, David, though, what I find really fascinating about this whole episode is then, what is it, 72 hours later, Joe Biden is going to give his first address in front of the United Nations. Um, and he's <laughs> so the White House knows that they have just screwed up one of the biggest diplomatic. Uh, and frankly, I understand that there were hard parts of whether how to include France and all of that. I do. I, it is not hard to give them a heads up. Um, as Jonah said, it is such a basic in politics. I teach my students this on like day one. You never surprise people. You know, if you think like surprise parties are fun, that's great. Most people don't. And definitely reporters don't. Other countries don't. Your colleagues don't. Um, I can't think of a situation where surprise parties are actually good in any way, except again, maybe birthday parties if you really, really know your spouse. Um, Noted. No surprise parties for Sarah. <laughs> no surprise parties. I do not like them. Um, I don't like surprises. I am a campaign flack. Um, I'm going to take the puppy back to the store now. Don't worry. They're probably going to put it down, but you don't like surprises. So. I did always want a surprise puppy, actually. That was the one thing I wanted. Um, like every Christmas, I was like, maybe they'll surprise me with a puppy. Like, no, they won't. Um, okay. So, but the White House knows all this. So then France is livid. They withdraw their ambassador. And now they've got 48 hours to the UN speech. And I'm just sitting there thinking, how do you go into the UN with Afghanistan still on everyone's mind and now France withdrawing their ambassador? What is he possibly going to say that will have credibility with that audience? How can he reassure them? Um, you know, his whole thing when he took office, right? America is back. That was his message to the world. Well, this has been a really rough six or so weeks for that message. And then it's like they wrote the speech back in March and didn't edit it this week at all. He <laughs> says, as we close this period of relentless war, we're opening a new era of relentless diplomacy. <laughs> we will lead all we will lead on all the greatest challenges of our time from COVID to climate, peace and security, human dignity and human rights. But we will not go it alone. OK, so if I'm in the audience listening to this and I'm France, I spit out my espresso all over you. Uh, when you say relentless diplomacy. If I am any other country and you talk about uh, closing this period of relentless war and human dignity and human rights, I'm thinking of how you told everyone that you were going to have an over the horizon strategy in Afghanistan and instead blew up seven children and an aid worker, lied about it for a while, got caught, then owned up to it and said, we're sorry. I don't understand how they thought that speech 
was possibly in the realm of not a joke. <laughs> I, I don't get it. I mean, it was completely inconsistent with multiple layers of administrative behavior. And, and Sarah, you're going to be proud of me. While Jonah was talking, I had a thought about what we did to France. And you taught me this phrase. New phone, who dis? <laughs> <laughs> we just ghosted them. We just oh, ghosted well, Australia I just did. I apologize to listeners. That was like definitely like a 2017 uh, <laughs> meme that like David just learned. So sorry. He's, <laughs> it's good it. though. Yeah. Okay. It's good. So here we have, um, the, you know, the, we're turning the page on war right after a drone strike that killed aid workers and children. Um, and while there was an, yet a, there was, I believe the day after the speech or the day of the speech, another drone strike in another part of the world. I mean, let me just clue you in. If you're drone striking, you know what you're waging? You're waging war. Okay. You're waging war if you're drone striking. And then, you know, he definitely says he does not want a new cold war. He says, quote, we are not seeking, say it again. We are not seeking a no, new cold war or a world divided into rigid blocks. After he just created a block called AQS. <laughs> now, look, all of that is, I, I endorse the AQS. I think, I, you know, until the France fallout. Sorry, out, now I can only hear it with an F. <laughs> I know. <laughs> after, after the France fallout, I mean, before the France fallout, I, I, I thought, well, this, this is really good. This is, this is a W. And over the long term, it will probably still be a W, but performed, done so unbelievably poorly. And this is one of those rare times you're going to see the GOP rally to France's side. No freedom fries in the house today. I mean, it is, this is, you know, one of the, those few, uh, few times. So, but, but once again, what, what's the pattern here? Complicated situation, predictable downside that comes to pass without a real plan. <laughs> If you're negotiating with Australia, you know there's a $66 billion deal out there. And you also know there's the idea of French prestige. You also know that there's the idea of French interest in the nuclear in the uh, Pacific theater. Why didn't you control for this? Why didn't you plan for this? So here we are once again. But I, I agree with you, Sarah. I think that, and, and the other thing is politically, um, you've said this many times, these, these foreign policy things don't really break through that often. But could there be worse timing? Could there be worse timing for this France ambassador, uh, you know, the France ambassador recall than just a few days after the just titanic mess in Afghanistan? Talk about reinforcing a narrative. Well, Steve, speaking of that narrative. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. But uh, when we were, we did not talk about Afghanistan uh, on this podcast last week, which I think was the first time in about two months. Um but since we talked about it last, two weeks ago, things have actually gotten worse, which is hard to really imagine or would have been hard to imagine back there. First um, is the drone attack, Sarah, that, that you mentioned. Um, and I'll go back to you on, on that. Um, after an extraordinary visual report from the New York Times, a video that retraced the steps of a civilian aid worker returning to uh, his family's home and being greeted by children, that was the person the U.S. drone attack took out, not uh, an ISIS 
a potential ISIS bomber. Sarah, when you look at that, especially in the context of what we've seen in, in Afghanistan, is that just part of this broader story about U.S. failure and incompetence in Afghanistan in the past several months, in the past several years? Or given the gravity of what happened and given that the Biden administration is staking in some ways U.S. national security on this over-the-horizon strategy with drone strikes like this at its heart, is that a bigger deal than just the, the humanitarian problems that, that it obviously is? So, um, yes. To me, what the drone strike signifies is a twofold problem that the Biden administration has. One, uh, this was their first attempt to push back on a terrorist attack. Remember, this starts because ISIS-K blows up hundreds of Afghan civilians outside the airport and kills 13 of our service members. This was the Biden administration's answer to that, was to kill seven children. So uh, you very much have the competence problem there, but it's beyond the competence. Joe Biden, it turns out, was totally feckless against ISIS-K. ISIS-K has suffered zero for the terrorist attack against the United States at this point. And in fact, if anything, has a nice little recruitment video against the United States because not only did they not attack ISIS-K, they killed seven children. So you've got a substantive problem there in terms of the Biden administration, again, uh, I thought very cockily saying that we didn't need boots on the ground because we could do this over the horizon and how stupid of every other administration not to just drone this war against terrorism. Um, and what they're finding is you have to know where the drone needs to strike. How are you going to find that out? And what I found really crazy was that their initial, uh, their initial statement after it was questioned was that they stood by, that uh, they're investigating it, but they stand by the intelligence. That's even worse. That's more concerning. Yeah. So that's the first issue. The second issue is a, a comms problem to me, which is after the uh, it was questioned initially and they had to go out and give a statement, their statement was, uh, we're investigating this, but we stand by the intelligence. That is an incredibly weird communication strategy as you're investigating it to then end up having killed seven children, but you stand by the intelligence. And so when you think about cynicism in government, I think to David's point about what domestic ramifications that foreign policy can have, uh, absolutely, this sort of thing is just another brick in the wall of incompetence, lying, misleading, to the point that people won't even really remember the specific bricks. In the end, they will see a wall. And the wall will be made up of all of these little bricks along the way. And it's not just going to be affecting Joe Biden. It, it does affect the institutions of the U.S. government over time as well. You see, I think that's an important point that no one, just really quick, that no one points out is that, look, it, it's horrible. It's tragic. It's beclowning. It's all of these things. It says bad things about the Biden administration. It's, it's, it's just terrible to kill kids, never mind an allied aid worker all that kind of stuff. It also just makes the over the horizon strategy harder 
the next time because everybody in the room is like, I don't want to do that again. And so they're going to be, I mean, and, and, and that's the right impulse. But it's, you know, this is, this is a point that John Bedords makes a lot is that, you know, Israel is really good at this stuff in part because they vet the crap out of all of it. They, they have, in, they have, they have intelligence assets on the ground. They red team things. They, they, they feel really, when they say they stand by their intelligence, they really stand by their intelligence because they've kicked the tires on it. But there's a certain amount of sort of amateurishness and hackery that, you know, what was the intelligence? That it was a white a Honda white, truck? Yeah. Yeah. You know how many of those there are? I mean, I think we gave the Taliban something like 12,000 of them. I mean, they're all over the place. Watch, go to YouTube and watch any video. There are white trucks all over the place. And I'm not saying that that was the only intel they had, but clearly it mattered to the intel because they followed this one truck all over the place as if it was, you know, it, it stood out like OJ's, you know, you know, car in, in 94 or something. And Bronco, sorry, I couldn't think of it. And um, And so it just makes... It, it not only casts a bad light backwards on their whole plan to do over the horizon stuff, it makes it less likely that they're going to be able, if they even they want to get their act together, it just makes it that much harder to get their act together on the over the horizon stuff because nobody, particularly in a democratic administration, wants to be the one who kills the second round of kids after they screwed it up the first time, you know? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Well, Jonah, uh, competence it is. I feel like we kind of gobbled up your topic, but there's way more to say about it. Yeah. So um, my topic is is a really sort of simple one. And, you know, as with so many things, all of your topics are simply uh, pre-confirmation of the correctness of my <laughs> position. Um, <laughs> uh, my question is basically just simply this. Is Biden bad at the job? Um, and I'll put a finer point on it. He campaigned on COVID. We know that, right? We, he, but he also campaigned on a return to normalcy and he campaigned on a plausible theory that he actually knew how Washington worked, given how he was a Senator since the Pleistocene era. Um, there are actually pictures of him, of a young Joe pre hair plugs, Joe Biden, as a junior staffer on the judiciary committee riding a mastodon. Um, and, um, <laughs> there was the fact that he was the negotiator with the Hill with Mitch McConnell in the Obama white house. He was the ward healer, the backslapper. He guys talks like regular Joe from Scranton, all that kind of stuff. And he triangulated against the democratic, the left wing base of his party. And so this theory was plausible. And then all it takes for him to abandon this theory that he knows how to Washington work, how Washington works, is for a bunch of like for John Meacham of all, you know, and a bunch of, and I like John Meacham fine, whatever, but like to tell him, Oh no, you can be FDR. And he's <laughs> like, I can. And all of a sudden he's got an agenda that would have been very difficult for Barack Obama 
to pull off. And Barack Obama had serious majorities in both the House and the Senate. You, uh, Sarah will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is the narrowest House and Senate in American history, or at least it's like tied with the narrowest in American history. And the idea that you could swing for the fences with an agenda that actually costs more money than the New Deal suggests that he actually doesn't know how Washington works or that he's lost a step or that he's out of it. And then all of these other things that he's done that we've chronicled so far in all of this suggest that either he relies on really, really bad advice, is a really bad manager, or isn't listening to really good advice, or he's stuck in a previous era and he can't get his head out of it. And, and there's some other non-charitable, you know, less charitable explanations of it. But it's very difficult to look at anything he's done since the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, which was easy to pass, that required serious work that he's pulled off without some major screw up to it. And so the question is, is he just not good at the job? I go to you, David. <laughs> well, not so far. Uh, <laughs> he has he has time to turn this thing around. But look, I mean, the thing about Joe Biden, if you're going to look at Joe Biden's record, the last thing that you were going, the last word you were going to use to describe him or the last phrase would have been brilliant problem solver. Um, this is not how you would have described Joe Biden. Po veteran politico, yes. Um, guy with kind of a good, the common touch, yes. Um, here's the most salient job uh, qualification he had. Guy most likely to be able to beat Donald Trump, yes. Not all of those not all of those attributes necessarily are positioning you to do the best possible job in the Oval Office, especially when a number of the emerging challenges are issues that A, are really very difficult, and B, are concentrated in areas where Joe Biden, if he had a salient weakness, it would have been in foreign policy. In foreign policy, he'd, you know, he'd had a lot of bad ideas in foreign policy over the years. And if, you know, the internal reports are true, one of his bad ideas, for example, was not going after Osama bin Laden, which would have been one of the singularly bad ideas of the Obama administration if if it had been if his if he'd been listened to. Um, he has time to turn this around. I mean, this we're, we're talking right now in September of his first year in office. So he has time to turn this around. So this is a totally premature comparison. I know it's premature. But I'm getting this like aroma wafting in the air, like this faint hint, this faint smell of Carter, of Jimmy Carter, decent man, pivotal moment in history overmatched by the job. That's what I'm sort of sensing. And one last thing, um, just in case uh, we worry that only Joe Biden has problems with diplomacy Breaking news, Boris Johnson being interviewed right outside the Capitol says it's time for the French to prenez un grip and donnez-moi un break, which I think is Franglish for get a grip and give me a break. So in diplomatic speak. Making a bad situation worse. <laughs> right. So, wow. you know, we, we don't have the monopoly on mistakes in the United States of America. But we do them better than most. <laughs> Sarah, you're going to say something? Uh, 
have we ever been this far nine months into a presidential administration where you've had so many losses, but also no wins? That to me is what's so interesting about this. He could have had the infrastructure win. And if you really, I think, dive down into the minutia of why he doesn't have an infrastructure win, it goes back to that shoot himself in the foot statement that he gave where he came out and said that he would only sign them both together. It was an unforced error. It was unscripted. Once he said that, the whole thing went off in this new trajectory. Um, that's what took the infrastructure deal to me off his, uh, off the resolute desk back in the early summer. So he has no legislative win. Um, and then this, like the losses are piling up. Uh, I'm sad that David already took the Carter analogy, but I do disagree with David on one point. I don't think he has a lot more time to turn this around at all. Um, I think he, at this point, I don't see how Democrats are going to maintain control of the House. Of course, they could, um, but it's really hard sitting here now, even with a year to go, to see how they'll do that. And without the House, his legislative agenda is done. And so then the question is, what wins can he rack up that are not legislative? Uh, The courts have some thoughts about that. And the answer (laughs) is not many. You know, David and I have talked about this a lot on advisory opinions, but um, what John Roberts gave Democrats with one hand uh, by stopping the Trump administration from implementing some of their policy wish lists, including rescinding DACA, they're applying that exact same incredibly high and to me legally bizarre theory to the Biden administration's go it alone, let's just do things by pen and paper. Um, So I don't know what wins they can rack up other than the infrastructure package. And it's like a choo-choo train where the infrastructure package is the engine and everything else that he might want to get done legislatively is stacked up behind it. Unless you can get the engine through, you're not getting anything else through. Um, And the infrastructure package is sitting there in the house. So, um, David, I mean, Steve, before I go to you, uh, just to throw this into the mix, since this really is sort of a mean girls potpourri topic about Joe Biden, <laughs> um, I'll disagree with both of you, but in one sense about the Jimmy Carter thing, um, first of all, don't think he was that nice a guy, at least not when he ran for president, um, did all sorts of mean things as a politician that he never gets grief for. Ooh, give us an nice example. Guy after- I'm sorry. I want, I want, give me an example. Oh, he, he like backstabbed even Ted Kennedy. He ran on uh, promising that communities could protect their ethnic purity, meaning white communities. Um, he had all sorts of weird views on, on race that never really get much scrutiny. But the one thing that he did have the capacity to do, which is where I really disagree with you guys, is the capacity to learn from mistakes. And you can call him naive for saying he had no inordinate fear of communism. But after the Soviets took, you know, invaded Afghanistan, he threw lots of money at, um, you know, a major defense buildup to hold off, uh, in his words, Soviet aggression. And um, he had all sorts of weird economics views that he kind of changed and became something of a deregulator. Um, And the only reason I bring it up is that I don't know that Biden has it in him at this point to change his mind about things. I think one of the reasons why he blew it in Afghanistan is he had this idea from 10 years ago when he was in the Obama administration 
And he was sitting there like George Costanza saying, I should have said, yeah, the jerk store called and they're out of you about how he was right and they were all wrong about something. And he wanted to prove it, even though facts on the ground had changed, circumstances had changed. I think he's a very stubborn old dude, as many old dudes are, and, and I plan to be fairly soon. And um, he can't let go, can't change his spots. And Carter could, you know, and, um, and I think that bodes poorly for the remainder of his presidency. But Steve, um, have at it. Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding my head vigorously uh, in agreement with you. Look, I mean, I think... I thought that was a medical dis- condition. <laughs> as we've discussed earlier here, I think incompetence explains a, a lot of what we're seeing. And I think that's certainly p- part of what will emerge uh, from the reporting on what we've seen uh, with, you know, Afghanistan, you, you name it. Um, but But there is also a part of Biden, this I think is an underappreciated aspect of his personality, of his character over his years in public life. He is stubborn. I, I actually, the, the place where I disagree with you, Jonah, is that I think he's been stubborn like this forever. Uh, you know, talk to people awesome. who work with him in the Senate, you know, talk to people who, who sat around him uh, in the Obama White House. He is stubborn. He, he will not be moved. I mean, you know, he's not um, likely to be shifted off his position when he opposed the uh, targeted strike on Osama bin Laden, the raid of the, the bin Laden compound in Abbottabad. Virtually everybody else was on the other side of that, and they spent days making their arguments to him, and he resolutely refused to go along, said, nope, I don't think this is a good idea. I think we're seeing, um, I would point to Afghanistan in particular, um, some of his uh, COVID policies and um, now with the, the sort of renewed mandates, the border policies where Biden has this sort of gut instinct that he's right and he knows what's going to be good for the country in six months, in two years, in five years. And he's just going to do it sort of consequences be damned. I think that's what we saw in Afghanistan. Certainly there were plenty of people um, raising problems with getting out of Afghanistan the way that we got out of Afghanistan. And that includes a number of people who thought we should get out of Afghanistan. So they agreed with the the broad policy decision that Biden was making, but disagreed with the way he was doing it. I think that's in part at play uh, on what we're seeing on the border. It's not a priority. Biden has decided that he was going to be the anti-Trump, that he was not going to exclude people the way that Trump excluded people. That was a deliberate policy choice. And again, consequences be damned. There's a really interesting um, comment that uh, Richard Holbrook made about Biden um, back in, in, uh, in his, I guess it was in uh, George Packer's book about Holbrook, and it had to do with Afghanistan. And Holbrook recounts a conversation that he had with Biden um, back in 2010, 2011 timeframe. And Holbrook says, in effect, I was making the case to Biden that we couldn't just bail because we have an obligation to these people in Afghanistan. And, you know, that would come back around if we just abandoned them. Holbrook says, this shocked me. And I commented immediately that I thought we had a certain obligation to the people who had trusted us. He said, he being Biden, F that. We don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. 
I think there's a huge part of the Biden presidency that can be summed up as sort of an attitude of F that. I'm going to do what I think is right. Who cares about the consequences? Also, just a, a historical codicil to that. I think that comes from Holbrook's uh, diary, which Packer may have been quoting from. But um, you got to remember, I mean, to sort of buttress the point, Biden was adamant that we had no obligation to take any of the of the Vietnamese boat people as um, asylum seekers in the United States. And he was vicious about it. And um, and you can hear echoes of his sort of position on the Afghan stuff where he says, yeah, we owe it to these people to bring in here, but it doesn't sound very passionate. And then you actually look and see that the share of Afghans that we brought over who actually are have special immigrant visas is is tiny. Um, I'm not saying that's a result of his deliberate policy. I think that's probably more the result of his incompetence of handling it, but it's, it's an interesting echo that he's sort of still relitigating positions he had 30 years ago or 40 years ago. You know, I feel like y'all that this has been too much of a downer podcast. Um, and so let's look at the upside. If the Democrats lose the house, think of the collection of statesmen in the house <laughs> GOP that are just poised to govern like adults, just, just ready to go. I was rewatching the Mitt documentary last night, David. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, you were rewatching you were re yeah, the yeah, Mitt the, documentary? The 2014 documentary about Mitt Romney's uh, 2006 to 2012 uh, campaigning career. Um, it's interesting. Watching it actually in 2021 was a very different experience than watching it in 2014, I will say, uh, and everything that I thought about it. All right, last micro topic. And really, this is just for Steve. David, Jonah, feel free to sit this one out. So uh, Drake has broken Michael Jackson's record for the most Billboard <laughs> Hot 100 uh, top tens from the same album. Thriller posted seven. That stood for 37 years. And now Drake has nine. He also outranks Michael Jackson in terms of most number one albums. 10 to Michael Jackson's six, most top 10 singles, 54 to Michael Jackson's 30, most consecutive weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, 431, and most Hot 100 entries, period, 258. My question, well, the internet is asking whether Drake uh, is now bigger than MJ. My question to you, Steve, is do you know who Drake is? <laughs> Sarah, I'm so insulted by this question. I don't know whether to laugh now or cry later. The the question I have for you is Drake a rapper or no? <laughs> is that but like that could be that could be a real question. It's hotly debated in oh my God. Drake circles. Oh, <laughs> wow. With people, Drake fans, polarized over that question. And by Drake fans, you mean your kids in the backseat? I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, but others as well. And you missed the album reference, I'm sorry to say. I have to just point that out. What was the album reference? Laugh now or cry later. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow. 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 See, I don't I don't follow Canadian artists, so I don't know anything <laughs> about any of this stuff. 
Yeah, he did mess with Giannis uh, during that, uh, that, what was it, the finals, the NBA or semifinals. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Noted well, Kentucky basketball fan, Drake, as well. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I not to yank this into seriousness, but there's no way people actually think that he has a bigger cultural impact than Michael Jackson, right? I mean, this just shows you how the erosion of the old recording industry can give you the same stats as Michael Jackson, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have the same so, impact. I think it's a really fascinating question because the question in and of itself is pretty unfair because we have nichified media, right. television, entertainment. We've also nichified music. So you never can be as big as the Beatles or Michael Jackson anymore because 30% or whatever of people who enjoy music are just totally way off in like the things they actually enjoy, which they can get access to, which they wouldn't have been able to back in an unnichified entertainment industry. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of unfair. Drake has broken all these records. And if Drake had, you know, done that or maybe been around in 1985, maybe he would be bigger than MJ. But no, clearly the answer is no, he's not and can't be and no one else can be. And it's not because MJ was so huge. It's that you can't be back in 1985. The world has changed. Tell that in to so Doc many Brown. ways. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, listeners, for joining us this week. We always appreciate y'all. Be sure to rate us wherever you're getting this podcast. It not only helps us, but it actually helps other people find the podcast as well, which we're for. We're in favor of that. And we will see you again next week. Bye.